Hey there, Docalos. Thank you kindly for pressing play on the Documenteers podcast, the podcast where we discuss a different documentary each week. My name is Bob Sham, and I'm the guy that is often here. This week, Angela helps me out in watching a pretty sad and personal documentary about a victim who got no semblance of justice, not even the chance of a trial, to clear his name. Long Island has its own good old boy system, as it turns out. So director Yancey Ford is going to make sure the real account of his brother, William Ford, exists in this world. Black family in a segregated Long Island neighborhood that was broken by the forces outside of it. Today we discuss the Netflix documentary Strong Island by Yancey Ford. More on that after the theme song, but next week on this show, assuming this works out this way, February has been keeping me on my toes for documentary scheduling. Last minute changes occurring behind the scenes, but hopefully Eldridge will be sitting across from me as we discuss the story of a movement through the accounts and editing of those Scandinavian scamps known only as the Swedes. An interesting account of an important period in civil rights with plenty of famous civil rights leaders talking to Swedish reporters. I've never seen this one and I'm excited to watch the Black Power mixtape 1967 to 1975. So join us for all of that fist-raising fun next week right here on The Documenteers. Only one music clip, if I recall in this episode, Long Island deep cut butt classic rap single called Strong Island by Central Islip's very own JVC Force. It's a good time. For more good times and information on us, go to documenteerspodcast.com. To help us out tremendously, please give five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts and subscribing and recommending and sharing is a big help as well. Keep our name in your mouths, please. Enough. Let's go to Long Island for some shit you wish never happened, okay? Okay. Keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Hello, it's Yancey. Hello, it's Demetri Jones, returning your phone call. Hi, Miss Jones, how are you? Okay. I am not sure if you remember my name or my brother's name. He was a homicide victim back in 1992 when you were with the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Okay. His name was William Ford. You worked on the case with Stephen O'Brien and Detective James Hughes. Okay, what do you want to know? I was calling to see if you were willing to, within, you know, your legal restrictions, um, answer some of the questions that have been sort of plaguing me for the last 22 years. No, I'm not going to do that. What does airplane mode do? Airplane mode makes your phone not connect to the internet. Basically, you can't get a text or a call. And so you can still play games and stuff, but not if they're... Online. Yeah, you can't do an online game. But you can play Solitaire or Minesweeper or listen to a podcast you've previously downloaded. Did you know that the same thing happens if you just leave your phone regular? Like the exact same thing happens. Can't you get still a text and a phone call though if you don't? Not in my experience. In the air, you mean? 
Right. But has anyone tried to text you during that time? I don't know. I mean, I've been... You don't know. I think in the last uh, handful of flights I've taken, I've not really done anything with my phone. I really don't fuck with my phone very much at all. I often will bring a book or something. Or pre-download a podcast at the most. But I just kind of leave the phone be because unless there's something I've saved on it, it's worthless. I guess because you're just so high up, you don't have any service, pretty much. The idea that there's been the classic idea, and this is back in the day when I was a kid taking my first flight and I brought my Game Boy. Bragging. I I was supposed to have my Game Boy turned off because it could interfere with flight controls. Your Game Boy couldn't have. Yeah, it's bullshit. But this is the same excuse that they have today. You know what it is, though? It's like... People being afraid of technology. You could probably buy Wi-Fi for your phone, but plain Wi-Fi sucks ass. We tried to buy plain Wi-Fi, and we couldn't even watch a single wrestling match. No. It was the worst. So we we took the plane hostage. That's queen. (laughs) Angela, thanks for stepping up. You're welcome, Bobby. And uh, because originally, Akil was supposed to do this episode... But he's busy. Full disclosure, we like to be transparent when we yeah. can. And but yeah, there's a lot going on in Akil's life right now. He caught some murder charges. Oh no. We think he'll be you just now finding out? Yeah, I didn't know. I just talked to him at yeah. Kroger. He seemed totally fine. He killed your parents. Uh, what? Oh, oh, you're just now hearing this? What? I don't think he did it. But Wait, he's no, just been arrested. my parents are dead? Yeah. This is this is not true. This is maybe not funny as well. Also, he's just texting with my mom. <laughs> oh, that's not your mother. That's me. <laughs> oh, did you kill my parents? Yeah, I know in that show you. You just said yeah, you killed my parents. You know. Yeah, on that show you. Yeah, where he's pretending to he's stole her phone. You in love with my mom? And he's a yeah. <laughs> I love. So- you were in love with my mom, so you killed my dad, and then you killed my mom also. But then I, her. after I killed your dad, I was like, actually, I love your dad. <laughs> He's pretty but great. But it was too late. <laughs> what kind of humor is this? <laughs> I don't know. We watch too many dark things. Shit gets kind of dark on our show sometimes. It does. I mean, we consume dark things. We talk about dark things. I mean, look who's hosting the damn thing week after week. I think you're a very jovial dude. I am, but like... Shit gets weird sometimes. Well, yeah. We're also regular normal people who bought a couch today and, you know, have animals and... Yeah, you're so happy that, about this I'm couch. I'm so happy about this couch. Pretty dope. <laughs> Two-piece? Is it real leather or fake leather? I hope it's fake leather because I don't want a real leather couch, but also um, I've never had a new couch. I've yeah. never bought a new couch. I've always had a hand-me-down couch, uh, old roommate or old uh, tenant left their couch and I just used it, couch. We got a couch big enough to seat two grown humans, a fairly medium to large sized dog, and three small dogs. Yeah, and maybe even an extra person. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Somebody comes visit. It's a real regular puppy pup. Brian will still be in the recliner, so. Okay, I killed and murdered your parents. I know. But he's going to court and we think he no. will beat these charges. <laughs> He'll be back. He can't avoid. Look. Akil's too much of a ham to avoid a microphone when offered to him. Let's be honest. I think he is bummed that he didn't do this episode. Yeah, I think he is bummed, but it couldn't be helped considering what he's going through right now. For sure. Um, I didn't know what this was about. I mean, I had an idea. 
I knew that the director was related to the subject, which is someone who was murdered. The victim. We're talking about Strong Island by, according to Wikipedia, what might be, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, our first ever transgender director, Yancey Ford. I think that he might be. Yeah. Our first. Yeah. And I'll go ahead and just say right now that if I accidentally misgender him within the talking about this story, during the time of all of this happening, him growing up and everything that happened with his brother, he was still presenting as female. Like he was still living his life as female at that point. Yeah. So there are a few times where I wrote she and the images in my head because the pictures they've shown are Yancey as a female. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, like if we misgender at any point, it's not intentional. It's just because we were being told a story of a time t- over 20 years ago, 22 years ago. Yeah. So since then, Yancey is now a man. Yancey. Um, and a filmmaker. Yancey references himself as a queer person, which isn't necessarily saying lesbian or anything like that. No, but also like in in the past as well, talking about. Yeah. How his brother didn't know he was queer. So we still don't really know. And he does not address the fact at all in this documentary that he is a man. He does not address that. No. It's not really the subject of the documentary. But you found your... Because the movie opens on Yancey. Because Yancey is the sibling of the victim. William Ford Jr. Yes. It's not about Yancey's queerness or whatever. No. But... You found yourself because you spent so much time with Yancey, especially in these intense close-up shots. Yancey's resting face kind of looks like he wants to beat your ass. Yeah. Like he just wants to just start swinging on you. And he does look very angry. Yancey's got some shit to be angry about. And this shit with his brother is probably just a sliver of a lot of shit that Yancey's got to be angry about. Possibly. Possibly. But this is a huge chunk of his life. Definitely significant. And we start out this film... With Yancey on the phone with... An old prosecutor, I believe. Yes, a Ms. Jones. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Um, do you mind if I ask you why? Because as a prosecutor, everything that happens in the grand jury is um, confidential, so I'm not sure. going to right. discuss it. No, I'm asking about the investigation. Yeah, no, I'm not willing to discuss any of my prior cases on film with anybody. May I interview you by phone? No. It was a grand jury case, which is confusing to me because it says it didn't go to trial. Because so is grand jury not considered a trial? It's not because there's no judge, right? Like they just make a decision. A dude who, there's a, a an attorney who explains it in the film. And the attorney is not just there apparently to just explain what a grand jury is. He actually ties in later. He actually ties into the lives of Yancey and William. his brother, William. Yeah. But he explains that a grand jury is essentially all the members are kept secret, but so is a regular jury, um, at least during the case. But they don't have to come to a full consensus. It could be like like a basic democracy. But they they hear it out and be like, is this worth going to trial? Oh, right. And so you basically say like, yes or no. And there's 23 people, so there can never be a tie. And often, even if things, and it's not like an absolution. It's not like, a, oh, I absolutely feel that this happened. That's not the role of a grand jury. No, it's more probable cause, the grand right? jury, Yeah, the grand jury says if there's even a hint of probable cause here, or it seems like this is a case that's worthy to 
be tried in a court, it's a, it's actually a fairly powerful position to be in. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, a grand jury would be like, yeah, this should go to trial. And based on all the information we get regarding William Ford's murder, it seems like if William Ford was a white dude, you'd probably get, would at least get a trot. Well, right. And that's why Yancey wants to talk about it to this woman. And this woman is like, I'm not talking about it with you. Then it cuts to the first of many very close up, as you mentioned, Yancey. Yancey has a scar on his lip. Also one above his eyebrow. Yeah. And I'm just, I can't help it. I'm just like. What happened? Is that the Yancey's next documentary? Going to tell us that? I don't know. But Yancey gets real up close and Yancey's like, I'm going to ask these questions. Maybe Yancey just fell off like a slide in kindergarten. Possibly. But lays it out and says, I'm going to ask these questions. I want to find out what happens. And if you. Is it me and you watching this? Yeah. Directly talking to us. Sitting on our old couch. If you're uncomfortable with me asking these questions, you should probably get up and go. So I paused it, stared you straight, <laughs> hard in the eyes, and I was like, are you fucking ready for this ride? And I, of course, said... Can, can you handle this, Angela? I grabbed your arm, and you are like, you're holding me too tight, and I said... Uh, you should stop, because shit. you're incriminating yourself. Oh, Bobby does not grab me like that. Not like that. <laughs> not in an unwelcome sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> I snatch your ass in the most loving way. But yeah, so we're in it. And Yancey yeah, does a little history. Of the family. Of the family. Goes back to talking about how their mother's father. Barbara. Their mother is Barbara. Yeah. Barbara's father died when Barbara was very young. Her father died of an asthma attack. This is just sort of the start of many anecdotes through their lives. Her grandfather died in a segregated hospital waiting room. A reason for him to die. Right. But he was made to wait after all the white people. Their family is from Charleston, South Carolina originally. Barbara grew up. Meets this fly-ass fellow. She fell in love with him when she was in the sixth grade. Yeah. But she didn't meet him for a couple years. And when they were in high school, he came up to her and said, will you dance with me? And then that same night said, will you be my girl? He kind of looked like a combination between like Robert Townsend and Arsenio Hall. Always smiling. He seemed to always be having a good time in his he was very, He was very cute and a very good smile. A snappy dresser. Snaz, he looked snazzy. Yeah, there's a lot of Miss Barbara interviews in this. And she talks about him. It's so sweet the way she talks about him. I think that my husband was a gorgeous man. Straight up hunk. A straight up hunk. How she, when he asked her to be his girl, she said she had to take a beat before she screamed, yes! And she goes, just kidding, I didn't scream yes. I said, yeah, I guess so. I <laughs> backflip on that D the whole she time. She was so excited. Oh, and you know hell. what? It was real. They got married. They had a beautiful little, like, wedding. This isn't a story of like a broke, well, this is a story of a broken family, but not how people would usually trot out the trials and tribulations of a black family. No, 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 not at all. This, this is, is a family that's together. Yes. That stay together. Yeah, they had William um, in 67 after they had moved to New York. So they moved to New York, uh, got out of the South. They lived in Brooklyn. Which Barbara loved Brooklyn. 
She described, I loved her impression of Brooklyn <laughs> Jewish ladies. Looks as if you're going to have a baby. <laughs> you're going to have a baby. You want some matzo? But it tickled her so much because she thought she was hiding it from people, but she was mm. so excited. Barbara really seemed to like the, I mean, New York City, there's some, there's definitely racial shit all over the country, but the thing about these metropolitan cities is that you kind of, even if there's animosity between races, they have to be around each other all the time. So, yes. so it just kind of results in people just like, to some degree, live and let live. It doesn't mean things aren't dangerous for a myriad of reasons. Sure. But Barbara liked the multiracial aspect of where she lived. And when they got a new house in Long Island. Yeah, yeah. Like the other kids were born and they needed a new house. I guess they were, the apartment was too small. Is Yancey the oldest child? No, Yancey's the second child. It goes William, Yancey, and then the youngest. Lauren. Before Yancey was even born, Barbara started working as a school teacher. She became a school teacher and she loved it. She actually eventually went on to teach at Rikers at a school for women and children. Women and girls. Which is kind of amazing that she was actually like teaching school at Rikers. Barbara seemed to be really getting shit done on her end. Yeah, she's a cool lady. They needed a bigger place, I guess, and the apartment wasn't going to do it. They had three kids and they kept looking at apartments and Barbara really wanted to stay in Brooklyn. And the city's expensive as fuck. Well, yeah, but then her husband is a train driver. Yeah, he drove the J train, which went through a lot of the harder neighborhoods. So he's like seeing all these hard neighborhoods and seeing all these people living their hard lives. And he's like, I don't want my kids to grow up around this. I want to get out of the city. New York is going through, especially during this time, they talk about it when the, in the sense of Long Island where a lot of uh, black communities from the city, people were kind of moving out of the hubbub of the major city and kind of settling out in Long Island area. But they were putting them, not putting them, but like they were sort of going out, when these people were coming to buy houses in Long Island, they were sort of getting like guided into certain neighborhoods. Not put, but like guided into like these certain areas. So there were almost these like pockets of black neighborhoods surrounded by like this huge white community. And in the city itself, this is the time where they're building this interstate that cuts off the Bronx from the rest of the city. Everything was getting segregated within the city itself. And over time, New York is what it is now, like a fucking super gentrified, very expensive ass place to live. Mm -hmm. Unless you live in these very pockets, but even then it's still expensive as shit. From the city itself to Long Island, there's a lot of intense segregation going on. Yeah. And, and and of course, the history, racial history in Harlem and all that, this is just one of many waves of racial segregation. And this is like one of the most modern that happened in that area. Well, and they talked about how like it was a good house. And that was one of the things that Barbara did like about it is that she never lived in a house. She really wanted there to be like a house that was the home for the family. Yeah. And Barbara, they were still in that this house when they're making this documentary yeah yeah so this is the house that barbara stayed in they just kind of talk about the family a little bit more like the we meet the younger sister well they were talking about this house like it was a safe neighborhood like it was actually very nice it was segregated but barbara was like there's only black people here she didn't like it very much the schools were bad yeah so they ended up putting all their kids in catholic school but you're still paying new york taxes Right, and there was something else that was not good about it. 
I can't remember. Maybe it was the taxes, but there was, it was like, it's a racism. good house. Racism. It was probably racism. Racism in bad schools. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. So then all of a sudden they're also having to pay for these like private schools for these kids because they don't want them in public school. And then the dad who had been still riding the train or driving the train, working on it, but also wanted to go to school, yeah. had to drop out of school. Because of the, because the kids were expensive. So they basically put the kids first. As you do, right? Yeah. And everything that they did was to help these kids. And As Barbara talks do. about this later. Yeah, absolutely. Barbara talks about this later, about how she really tried to raise her kids to not see color. Like, people are people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't look at the color of someone's skin like people are people. Yeah. Or and judge that'll come back judge around char- later. Judge, judge character, character, not color. But she said she felt like that was a mistake. Yeah, and we'll get into why. Because she kind of says that towards the end. But but they really were trying to raise their kids. The ideals that she had really would have been better served had they stayed in Brooklyn. As far as like being introduced to so many other kinds of cultures and yeah, communities. Get in on that rent control. Right. Get by triple bunk beds. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. You gotta, yeah, yeah, you gotta have a bigger space if you have children. <laughs> if you have three kids, yes. In New York City, very well, hard. And she said it was a real point of contention between her and her husband. Like she... Didn't want to move out there, and that's, like, the only place he wanted to go. Yeah. But they did it. And so the younger sister talk, tells this cute story about how her brother called her Kato because Kato, of a Bruce Lee movie. Kato is the Green Hornet sidekick. Okay. Green, Green Hornet is an old radio serial action character mm-hmm. that's kind of survived over the years. There's been shows and movies over the years and stuff. So he was, like, her little sidekick because he was seven years younger than yeah. her. Yeah, and Bruce Lee played Kato. Therefore, Kato was the coolest. Everyone knew that. Gotcha. Like who, do you remember who played the Green Hornet in that show? No. Most people don't. Most people don't don't care. I don't remember that show. We also meet his best friend, Kevin, at the time. They had been inseparable all growing up. Right. Kevin plays a big part in this story. Yancey talks about how that summer that all this went down, William had moved into the basement. And this is another sort of thing where we get a little hint into Yancey's life. He talks about how when he was younger, living as a, straight female, basically, at the time, would sneak into William's bedroom and read his Playboys at night. Right. And doesn't believe William ever knew, but it was something that was a big deal at the time in Yancey's life. Because Yancey was realizing, obviously, at the time, saying that he was a gay woman. Right. But couldn't come out to Mm. anybody there in this little town in Long Island that they were living in. We get into the incident. We get into the murder. What happens is there's a tow truck mm-hmm. clips the car with, uh, um, who's in the car? First off, the tow truck has no lights on. In the car, William, Leslie, and the littlest okay. sister. William's driving. Leslie is like a friend of the family. She works with his mom. I don't know if she was his girlfriend, but they were close. The tow truck clips the car. And the person driving the tr- tow truck says, I mean, it's shady off the bat. But, it's, but they're like, look, if you don't file a report... You just bring your vehicle in. We'll just fix it. Yeah, and it's a 19-year-old white guy. And there's, I think Kevin does get word of who he had this exchange with. Uh, They ultimately agree. I mean, because, but there's no trail, no, there's nothing like citing any fault here. Yeah, but when Kevin hears that his best friend William made this deal, he's like, what the fuck, man? Well, the place is called, what's this fucking place called? Stang? Uh, Super Stang. Super Stang? Mm-hmm. Super Stang Body Shop. And Kevin 
realizes that this place has a reputation. Yeah, apparently a few years before, the owner of the place, Tim Daytree. Daytree, stuff like that. Junior, maybe, had gotten in trouble because he'd set up an illegal chop shop. Yeah. In, the, in his, like, parents' garage. Had kids stealing cars for him and mm-hmm. chopping them up. So he got in trouble, but then he came out of that and opened a body shop. And yeah, so they say, hey, we'll fix the car. Like a month goes by. Seems like the way they talk about it, it's like it takes forever. Which you can see that immediately when you hear the guy go, hey, you just bring it into my... Uh. Well, and the thing is, the car's just sitting there in the shop. It's not like it's like... They're, yeah, they're not We can't get it. to it yet. Maybe next week, maybe next week. Like the car is sitting there not being fixed. Bring it over to Stanky Stangs and we'll get it fixed up for you. <laughs> Gross. So... At some point, Leslie goes by there with his mom because they work together. And after work one day, they drive by to see if her car's ready. And it's not. And this kid, hold on, page is flipping. Mark. Mark Riley. Mark Riley. Mark Riley gets fresh with his mom. Disrespecting the mother. And like curses her out apparently. And obviously she's upset. She goes home. William thumbs out. He's upset about it. And this is especially during this time, and there's still plenty of places that are like this now. You don't say that about... You don't just disrespect someone's mother like that. No, you can't. And I mean, truly, in my personal world, you know, if someone... Like, I don't really give a fuck what happens to me, but like, to me, it's a fine line. If you're angry at someone, it's cheap to go after someone that they love. Yep. If you got beef with them, then that's where the beef should be. So, I kind of get... I kind of get that, getting your fur flared up over some shit like that. It can Absolutely. happen. But at the same time, so many morons out in this world are going to pop off whatever at the mouth that are you going to really go swinging on everyone? You know, some people, some people don't deserve your respect or your time, but they also have their fucking car and right. sitting there. It's not like he can't not deal with it anymore. Yeah. So William and Kevin roll up late one night to go pick up the car. The vacuum, Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, later they tell the full story. Do you want to just tell the full story now? Yes, we'll just get into it. So they pull up and they're like, you said some shit to my mom. What they ended up saying is that basically he's like, you're not fixing the car, but you can fix all these other cars. And he sees this door of a Corvette. Yes. And he picks up this Corvette door and he acts like he's going to throw it. But hearing Kevin tell it, Kevin says that there were like 15 people there. And everybody was kind of like, Maybe not egging him on, but that was the... They were like, I don't want to say egging him on, but sort of Clowning him. Clowning him. And then they were also making fun of this Mark Riley kid who was kind of being, like, scared of him. The detective, particularly, that called uh, Yancey back later. There was a, a receptive detective. Yeah. Who had remembered the case. Yeah. And the detective is the one that stated that... Everyone was laughing at Mark because he was so scared. Yeah, apparently they were making fun of him and calling him a little girl. But it seemed like everyone, but that's according to that detective. What this does, what that story, I don't think Kevin said that Mark was like scared and shaking. No, he said everyone was laughing. Scared of what? So this is the report that the detective is being told. True, which is part of the case. He's being given this detail which is helping to lay ground. You're right. For something else later. You're right. So, but Kevin does say that other people were laughing and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal at the time. Kevin said, yeah, Kevin said things seemed a little jovial, but things were obviously tense and at the same time. And also William had swung around like 
what a what a the, vacuum a va- cleaner? Yeah, which is the kind with water in it or some shit. Which is probably like a it's like a wet vac, and so like we have for the basement, and sure. so like he pro- he like put the car down car door down because the girl who owned the Corvette was there and was like, whoa, stop it! He put it down. He did not hurt the car. No, he picked up the vacuum. He did like raise it above his head, and so water got on him, but he didn't hit anyone with it. He didn't do anything with it. Apparently, he also at one point I believe picked up a hammer, yeah. but again did no threatening. Didn't do anything with the hammer. He just was holding, holding the hammer. It, yeah. So that's what happened that night. We also learned at some point that he went home and called Yancey about this and was like, hey, this thing happened. Yancey was at college. In later recollections of it, it's almost like Yancey was like proud that her brother at the time called and told. Yeah. Yancey reacted like, good, you stood up for yourself. Yeah. And it was also like, you know, this this guy is my hero and great job. You did a great job. Yancey never mentioned it to the parents. No. And felt some guilt later about that because Yancey thought that if if they had said something to the parents, then the parents might have kept him from going back to that place. But we can't know that. We can't know that. Yancey makes a statement regarding that because there's a part in which he feels connected to the responsibility of William's death. Because William would die not very long after this. I believe like, it was a month. A month later. And it... it it's not, Yancey doesn't do a, uh, I, I should have done something different. I, you hear this a lot with tragedies. Mm-hmm. I understand why people say that, but a lot of time you can't really change what uh, occurs and things. But that's not really what Yancey was going for. Mm-hmm. It's just that this sliver of guilt. It sort of, it grounds it somewhere. It puts it on the earth as opposed to in the ether or as opposed to in, in the unknown or in the anonymous. If I don't ground it in some way in myself, then it's everywhere, all the time, it's ubiquitous. And that actually is a greater, more damaging, heavier burden to live with than to blame myself for not being a smarter 19-year-old when my brother called me and told me about this stupid fight that he had. Utilizing guilt in a very specific way that forces you to change. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get this. It's not, I don't, I haven't experienced this tethering of guilt in this level of a tragic way. This is pretty intense. But in other things growing up where I feel bad about something, that guilt, what I, what I want to utilize the guilt for, not that I'm just bowed down with the guilt that I can't go on, but the guilt allows me a level of responsibility and that level of responsibility allows a level of accountability and that a level of accountability is a constant reminder that I need to kind of change my forward momentum in life and try to become the best I can to what I believe the ideals of a good person are. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I guess people can carry guilt too hard and it's not good. I guess it's like a case by case basis. I didn't get that that's was Yancey's level. I told this idea of holding on to something, taking responsibility for a piece of something to keep it from just running wild somehow becomes even more tragic. Like, uh, like if it's an absurd moment that just seems to take someone you love's life Mm -hmm. that could just, and you can't put any grip onto it whatsoever. That's, that's going to hurt way worse than just feeling a little bit guilty about it. So, when Yancey was like... Does that make sense? Actually, yeah, I kind of do yeah. know what you're talking about. It's an interesting 
emotional conveyance. And I've never heard it explained that well before. I don't know if I could have explained it like that. There was a honesty yeah. to Yancey talking to this camera that is very unique. I don't know that we've seen this before in this way. There's literally a part where Yancey says something and then goes, am I really saying what I'm trying to say? And then it cuts off because I think in that moment he doesn't know how to say what he's trying to say. No. But is honest and leaves that part in with the pause because it's so hard to convey some of these thoughts and feelings. Yancey says, I'm not angry. That's the hardest thing to believe. There seems to be something under there and it, it just seems justified. It's sitting through this movie, we understand your anger. Unless part of that is, you know, so, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to read into what Yancey's gone through or how they've dealt with this, but right. sometimes there is a part, sometimes people have to just let go of that anger feeling of it or it will make you crazy. Sure. And mean and depressed, you know, like if you can let go of the anger part of it and just, I don't know, I guess live in the grief, like that sucks, but. So a month later, William goes back to Stanky Stang's body shop. Yeah, goes back to Super Stang. He calls Kevin and says. Let's go get my car. Let's go get the car. And Kevin's like, let's go to Queens, which means. Strip clubs. So let's go to Queens. Let's just go get a beer. Let's go hang out. Let's go get a beer. Yeah. William is intent that they're going to get this car, and Kevin has a bad feeling about it and just keeps saying, man, let's just go get a beer. Let's just go get a beer. And William is like, and Kevin doesn't play the, if I'd only just not taken him there. He doesn't do that, no. which is good. But he does say, I really did try to get him not to go there because he just, I guess, had a bad feeling, which he should have because he gets there. And so what happens is, Daughtry comes out, and William is talking to Daughtry. Yes. Kevin is, I. it seems like he's either in the car or he's hanging back. I feel like he's just, like, near the car. And Daughtry comes out. They seem to be having, they seem to be exchanging words, but it doesn't look like it's going to be violent or anything. Mm -hmm. And then this Mark, what was his name? Well, one thing, one thing we find out he does say to him. What? Is we find out during some of this that, William has been on the path to becoming a corrections officer. Yes. He's been trying to get the right weight. You have to be down on a certain weight. And he was a little heavier set dude. And so he's been trying to become a corrections officer. And so one of the things he says to Daytree, Daughtry, is, well, when I become an officer of the law, I'm going to shut this damn place down. Oh. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but like basically I'm going to shut your shit down. Yeah. When I get some sort of authority, you better believe. Because it's bullshit. So Mark Coward, I can't remember his Riley? last name. He walks out. Just looks. William recognizes him. Now we'll say this how Kevin mm-hmm. describes the story. Because the detective describes a fearful Mark Riley that everyone's laughing at. Like, what are you scared of, Mark? Yeah. Kevin describes. Three feet, four feet, stopped dead in his tracks. Ford turned and said, Kevin, that's the kid that cursed out my mother. And then, like we grew up, nobody disrespects your mom. At that point, I knew somebody was going to get into a fight. It was nothing for me to say, so I just said, okay. I guess you're going to go beat his ass. So, William starts to walk into the garage. And Ford went to walk towards him. The kid turned, 
went back in the garage and made a left, disappeared. Minute Ford walked to that garage door and made a left, I heard a pop. And I said to the guy, I said, what the hell was that? And he says, I don't know. So I said, it sounds like an air compressor. And then I said, do you guys have a gun here? And he said, yeah, we have one in the back. Kevin thinks, oh, 22. 22 is not going to really hurt you. But William did not get very far. As no. soon as he walks into the garage and makes that turn, pop, he's shot. Yeah. Like, he's not even, like, in that building for more than one second. The thing that's different about a low-caliber gun as opposed to one that will just punch a fucking hole right through you, which can be very dangerous if it hits an organ. Mm-hmm. But a low-caliber gun, sometimes they'll, like, bounce off bone. Right. And they'll go, like, it's kind of, they, they have a trajectory that once it hits something... You're lucky if it goes right through you or stops on something, but it can, like, move around in your body, that Ugh, bullet. Which is what it did. So a 22 is actually, I don't, I never understood why. It, it, it can be very dangerous, for sure. Gotcha. Thank you for explaining that. Because I don't know anything about guns. You know, I, honestly, I barely know shit, but I do know that, that low-caliber guns like that can have that issue. He's been shot. Kevin gets to him. They are in... The driveway, William does say to Kevin, Mark, like, he shot me. Yeah. He just shot me. That may be the last thing that William said. And he stays there with him. The cops come. This part gets real shady. The cops come. They're like, you got to leave the body. And he's like, I'm not leaving my friend. And he's like, you got to leave the body and get over here behind the car. There's still someone inside with a gun. And fucking Mr. Monopoly pulls up in his limo. Well, they bring the guy out without handcuffs. Yeah. And instead of putting him in a cop car, put him in a limo. Yeah, and he, he's apparently in this limo for a while. Like, just as it's just as I understand it, describe that this limo is just sitting there. Meanwhile, Kevin's like, my friend is dying. Where's the ambulance? And they're like, he's dead. Sir, this is a homicide. Yeah. Like, your friend is gone. And that's when he calls Kevin's mom. Sorry, that's when he calls William's mom. He calls Barbara and is like, you got to come over here. The Stang place, whatever. Super Stang. It looks like already that Mark Coward's going to like, get away with something here. Uh-huh. He's going to get away with this murder. It's very clear to Kevin that, that the moments watching him go to the limo, that these are the moments in which justice is not going to go down. Yeah. And it's and, and sure enough, we were talking about the grand jury. Mm-hmm. The grand jury chooses not to allow this to go to trial. Because they basically feel, we find out from... The detective that calls her back later, they found that it was self-defense. Now, Barbara was at that grand jury meeting. She describes people like doing crossword, jury members doing like crossword puzzles. Reading books, reading reading magazines. Chatting also. All white. All white. I felt so angry in that moment. Like, it's supposed to be a jury of your goddamn peers. Here's the thing. If you're in a... Say you live in a city. This, uh, this This is how I believe it should work. You could still be a minority and it might not help you. But if you live in like a city that is 30% black, 30% of that jury should be black. Yeah. The jury pool should always, grand jury or regular jury, should reflect the makeup of the city itself. Yes. Because that's how I, I feel like you would get the most honest answer out of that. And of the city where the crime happened. Yes. Not of whatever city it might be. Yeah. 
held in. Oh, right. Yes. Because that sometimes does happen. Like, you have to move things around. Like, you can't, that doesn't, that doesn't make it okay. Or you can apply the population of the state or something like that. Sure, but it cannot just be all fucking white people. Yeah, especially in, when tried against minorities and shit like that. And that, yes. Because, like, any sensible, I mean, you got, I mean, this case I think there are people even now. We hear about people like shooting people. Trayvon Martin. Yep. This fuckhead gets in a fight with this teenage boy who has every right to be in this area because his dad lives there. Yep. And this dude, self-appointed rent-a-cop scumbag, comes and questions the boy. Right? Mm-hmm. Then they get in a scuffle because the boy's being harassed. This guy has no right to come up and ask, what, because he's wearing a hoodie or something. In fact, people often forget that, like, they got in a fight and then, fuckhead, I can't remember his fucking name. I only remember Trayvon Martin's name. Good. Went off and called and was like, I just got in a fight with a kid. And they were like, leave him the fuck alone, sir. Don't. Leave him alone. And this guy still comes back, finds Trayvon, and murders him. And a jury acquits this piece of shit. William was a large black man, like the same weight as me, but taller. Right. (laughs) And... (laughs) And so, um, well, obviously, it's self-defense. Like, that's shit that people... That could happen today. What happened? What happened to William in 1992 or to his family could happen today. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the parallels of, like, they leave segregated Charleston and gr- raise their kids in New York. And New York's got the most segregated school system in the whole country. I mm. should point that out. And then they're like, oh, let's go to Brooklyn. Let's go to Long Island. And... We're going to have this nice life. Boy, howdy. Yeah. I mean, that's that's when Barbara, you know, that's when she's talking about how she feels like maybe she did a disservice to her children in raising them the way that she did. I think she was just hopeful. Yeah. I don't think she did anything. This breaks my heart. She didn't do anything wrong. But she felt like she should have perhaps, the insinuation was that she should have perhaps raised her children with, to be more wary, I guess. You know... Judging someone on their character is important. Yeah. But that can take some fucking time. It can. And, and you have to understand your surroundings and your community and, and the, the stigmas and the biases. And the context. And, yeah. You know, that character issue, that can take time. And, you know, people can be well a well-meaning bad judge of character. Yeah. It sucks to say, but judging someone based on their skin color can cause a much more immediate reaction because character takes time. And that's, like, the saddest fucking part about it. But she just felt like she didn't equip him with the realistic expectations. But at the same time, they're in this world just like she is, you know. I'm sure William understood. I understand where she's coming from. Yeah. But I think William got it. But I think that's, again, her. That was her part. Yeah. You know, like, that's what she feels was her part that led to this. Mm. And it's just so hard not to... Think of what you could have done differently had you done it differently. Like, while we always say, like, that's such a horrible place to be in and no one should do that to themselves. But you do. You know? And that was her thing that she held on to. You know, back to this idea. Like, you get in this conflict. I mean, this is the how I idealize it in my mind. Say, in my younger days, I did pop off on someone's mom. Hell, it could have happened. And then a, a fight breaks out. I either win that fight or push back or get my ass kicked and then fight is over. Mm-hmm. There is like some, when I was a kid, it wasn't uncommon to get in a fight, 
but you just kind of like burn through it. This notion of this notion of if I think I'm going to be hurt, I can just shoot someone. That seems to be permeating not only from like these right winger gun nut types that just seem to really want a, an excuse to pop off on anyone. Mm-hmm. And I ain't hating on guns. No. I actually like guns. I just like it on the left side of things. I don't want you to take my guns either because I want to defend myself against those motherfuckers, you know. Mm-hmm. But but the idea, one person is dead. One person has gun. Other person does not. Exactly. One person is a coward. Yeah. Period. Yeah, exactly. That's what I kept thinking the whole time is there's no justifiable reason to shoot him. None. He didn't have a weapon. So what? He was coming after you. Yeah. Okay. Stand up. Run the fuck back outside. Use the gun to get him to back off. I don't know. Don't shoot the man. Because now you've murdered a person. And you've broken a family. One thing I wanted to talk about. And cops, too, they're they're legally allowed to shoot people if they just think they're in a threat. Well, that's a whole disgusting trail we could go down <laughs> if we wanted to. Barbara talks about even after this happened, and obviously her son was shot by this man, they go in to talk to the DA about it, and she said that... I felt that, you know, they were going to say, here is another black woman who didn't do her job with her child and now she wants us to make somebody pay. That's how I felt. And she said, you know, I'm not going to say they said this and they said that. She said, what I will say is they did not receive us as parents of a victim. And that is also disgusting because they come in there and they're just all questioning them. Kevin also said that they didn't ask him anything about that night. They asked him about how often William was going to the gym, how strong he was, how he was working out. And then one day I got called to come see Miss Jones. We had no experience with this kind of stuff, you know. Maybe I should have had a lawyer, a representative, I don't know what should have went on. She just called and said, meet me. And you know, you just go there, you're gonna answer questions and you know, about that night, that's what I thought. To be honest, I didn't even know she was a DA. Just thinking I was going like to talk to a detective or I was shocked when she walked in the room. She immediately started with the stuff with the gym. She's like, you know, you look like you're in pretty good shape and you know, how much do you weigh? She asked something about William's size and it was kind of more telling me than asking me. And I don't think she sat down. She kept kind of walking back and forth in front of the table it was just, I was like, why are they asking me all these questions about strength and gym? And it was not a lot about that night or about um, William. There is no more corrupt element in a courtroom than a fucking district attorney. Oh, sure. The power a district attorney has in that courtroom. They can, they can help scumbags go or they can bury you. They got more power than most city officials. Like it yeah. is unreal how they can ruin and wreck people's lives. And then all these like fucking shit TV shows uh, and like works of fiction all featuring like noble district attorneys who right. want to save this city and protect this city. What a crock of horseshit. This country is being ruined by so many dirtbag DAs. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
a DA is such a fine fucking example of that. After William is killed and before the grand jury happens, there's a couple weird things that happen at their house. Yancey comes home, doesn't want to leave the house. The youngest sister won't come home to the house because she doesn't want to be alone at her house, but she also doesn't want to be with her parents because her mom is upset all the time. Her dad has kind of closed himself off. Like everybody is going through this shit. Then also they have a car parked on the other side of the street. People are constantly par- yeah. watching them. Phones ringing. Who are those fucking people? At all hours of the night, during the summer after my brother was killed, I could look outside the window and there was a car parked across the street. That car and whoever was in that car was watching our house and trying to intimidate my parents. Phone's ringing all night long, every single night. You pick up the phone and no one says anything. I mean... They're being harassed. Wait, is it? But I thought these northeastern states were so woke. This sounds like segregated Alabama. This wouldn't... This kind of thing wouldn't happen here. Uh, Dad is broken. And Barbara had to really kind of shake him and remind him that they are sharing this grief. It's our loss. We together created this child. God granted him to us for these years. You can't grieve an issue that came from my body and shut me out. both cry. I can't. I. mm. Yancey's father would have a stroke. A year later. And we see footage of him going to, I think it was Yancey's graduation. Yeah. Yancey, stand next to that. Where are you? I'm right here. That's a good sign. Okay, huh? you right side. It's a good side. I know. All right. Okay. okay. Smile, Dad. <laughs> and he, you could tell he was still like trying to had cut up, was trying to cut up a little bit, talking about his good side. Yeah. The family lifting them up, and um, whoa, I'm getting choked up. Pardon me. I know it was very sweet. I really didn't expect uh, to get emotional. <laughs> yeah. it's a, This is a rough one. Yeah. And it didn't really hit me while we were watching it. Well, but I've been crying for the last 10 minutes. Like, I just... That's the thing about... I was angry watching it. A lot of the things they yeah. said made me angry. But now it just... It just breaks my heart for them because it shouldn't have been... It shouldn't have been that way. And even if the things happened the way they happened... Justice wasn't served. No. Because he at least deserved a trial. At least a trial. Oh, I did want to also mention, before the grand jury, um, Barbara wrote a letter to the DA and tried to sort of plead with him, like, listen, you got to just give this a chance, you know. But when it all came out on the other side that they weren't even going to get this trial, like, they presented it, like you said, as though Mark Riley was scared to death and he was defending himself... But it just seems like there was no defense of William. Because then Yancey goes into talking about all the great things about William. And these people talking about how he was a wonderful person. Can you tell the story about the lawyer? 
Yeah. Well, William, it kind of, it kind of takes a while to tell this part of the story. We start to get this towards the end, but it's the story that shows that William, he kind of had some troubles. Like he was going to Howard right after he'd graduated high school, but he kind of, he wasn't feeling it. And then he ended up moving back to Long Island, but he had plans. He had goals and mm-hmm. his mother had worked at, um, where'd she work? Rikers. Rikers. She worked at Rikers. So that helped him kind of get a footing, and he realized he could make forty grand a year as a prison guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he started teaching at Rikers. Yeah. He was actually teaching he boys. Was a, he was a teacher, yeah. actually. And then he wanted to become a corrections officer and make this 40000 a year. And he actually, in his journal, like wrote his goals. He was like, by June, I'm either going to be a corrections officer or I'm going back to school. Like, he had plans. Yeah, forty grand a year in nineteen ninety two, that's like proper Yeah. Good comfortable middle class money. Sure, the nineties pretty much sold out the middle class, but I mean we didn't know that until much later. Right. It was a slow burn. But um but yes, so there's we the lawyer that explains to us what a grand jury is earlier in the film, like we said, he's not just there for his expertise. He actually tells a story about how he got shot by some dude. And it was a very dramatic telling, and he got very emotional about it. He didn't want to... He was in Brooklyn, and but William happened to have been there. It might... It was William and Kevin, I believe. Yeah. Because they were two, They were together. And they didn't just like, oh shit. They didn't just go help the guy. They... William ran down the dude with the gun mm-hmm. and like got his ass i forget who they were talking to but someone was like and i I was trying to remember was he in the service or something what gave him the training or ability to handle himself in such a uh effective way you know fearless it was a uh heroic act i think he had good instincts but this is but this story is like who william was at the core of who he was he was somebody who genuinely wanted to help people out. The week that he got killed, he was actually testifying in that trial. Yeah. Because, you know, the attorney... And the attorney had felt alone in that moment. He didn't know it was happening. He had, like, crawled down to the subway and, like, the, got a lady started helping him. But then after William caught that man, his other friend tried to go help... I, I guess it was Kevin, I don't know, tried to go help him and, like, found him and wanted to make sure he was okay. Like, it also wasn't even just, I'm going to do the hero thing. It was also, where is that guy that got hurt? You know, like, there were those two sides of it that were so important. But he was actually, that very day, had been in court testifying to convict this man who shot this white guy. I don't know. So you don't, when you don't have a trial, and you're not able to see what's being said, because that's the thing, the grand jury is a super secret. Yeah. You go in for your bit and you come back out. No one hears all of it except those 23 fucking people and the DA and whoever is defending you. It's in theory supposed to protect the defense as it was explained. So a grand jury is somewhat mysterious, I think, to the general public. Another reason that is is, is it's uh, it's secret. Uh, and, you know, that actually, I think some people are cons- get concerned with, with that. Um, it's actually supposed to be a protection for the defendant. Um, And the idea there is, uh, you know, if the grand jury decides that there's not probable cause, uh, that the person should not have the stigma of, you know, having been 
you know, brought before a grand jury. This whole thing just protected Mark Riley. It also, yeah, it also happens to be a convenient tool to assuage control in a bullshit good old boy system. Exactly, because you don't know what they were told. I mean, when you hear, so so there, one of the last things that happens is that the, um, we've referenced him a few times, but Yancey actually gets to speak to this detective who was part of it. And when he breaks it down, what happened, I mean, we've sort of put part of this in with the story we've told, but talking about that whole, like, Mark being so afraid, that was part of the narrative that was spun in that room. And there was no one there going, but that's not who this person was. Yeah. So the fact that you're telling it in this way does not make sense. No character witnesses at all. No mother, no family to... I mean, the mother was there, but we don't know what they asked her. They weren't listening to her. Yeah, she was essentially ignored. There's no, there was no context or framework for William Ford. That was already established before that even occurred. Yeah, we're pretty much at the end of this. Yeah, you kind of hoped it was going to be a little more investigative in the sense that it comes to some kind of, you can't replace a life, but some kind of resolution in some way. If Mark fucking coward somehow got justice they talked about this daltry guy that daltry guy daytree daytree yeah they meant the detective had mentioned that he was in the news when he was talking to yancey you remember that when they when they dropped when he drops the name william was speaking to to thomas daytree coincidentally he's in the news now have you seen that i i have tim Daytree, D-A-N. I don't know how to spell it. I spelled it phonetically like Daytree. D-A-T-R Junior. Oh, and the name Mark Riley comes up. He was in a like a dumping case in Long Island. Oh God. Oh, there's a uh, oh, there's fucking Thomas Daytree. Boy, he looks like a a winner. Let's see. Was released according to this. He was sentenced to serve concurrent one year for terms for. Four felony convictions. Mastermind of a dumping scheme at four Suffolk properties. This is an article about how he's out of jail. Apparently he was just like dumping a bunch of shit. Contaminated construction debris was dumped at four properties. Roberto Clemente Park in Brentwood. A six home subdivision in Islandia built for returning veterans in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. A private one-acre plot on Islip Avenue in Central Islip and a sensitive wetlands area in Deer Park. The case led to the convictions of five people, including two town park officials. You know, like how sometimes people will be like, I'll just dump this fridge behind this Lowe's. Yeah. He did that with like contaminated construction waste in multiple areas throughout Long Island. You mentioned Central Islip. Yeah. That's where... The Ford family lived. Yeah. This article is basically like, yeah, you got out of jail. When did that happen? This article is from 2017. Okay. So that's what, that was probably what they were talking about then. And I didn't, I just didn't kick up on that. This film came out a year ago. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes sense. That tracks. That's pretty much this movie, eh? Is there anything else? I don't think so. It's a, it's a rough tale. And it made rougher when you're made to talk about this stuff. Watching it is one thing. Talking about it can just bring up a whole other aspects of it. Yeah, I mean, and we we definitely walked straight in here after watching it, so I didn't have time to sort of sit with my thoughts about it either. So I think that's 
why it hit so hard when it was really sort of saying out loud what they went through like really it sucks well let me say this out loud we don't rate documentaries in a herzog rating scale thank you for being a kill oh you're welcome a kill will be back mm-hmm. he's just got some business to handle <laughs> but we don't rate documentaries in a her- and a star no we we don't rate it a star why don't you start over <laughs> we don't rate documentaries in the star rating scale yeah i don't know if you're aware we do it in this thing called a herzog rating scale i've heard of it where we inject german filmmaker Werner herzog into a rating system i'm gonna give this one through five herzogs you're gonna give this one through five herzogs and mm. we will combine these herzogs and that will make the final score which will be a more perfect rating than any other rating out there this film May I go first? Absolutely. This film, Strong Island by Yancey Ford. May I ask a question? Strong Island is a song, right? They played part of it during the documentary. And I was going to ask you, they only played a short clip. I don't remember what the song was about. Whose song is that? What's the significance? It's kind of a deep cut in terms of what is known. But uh, maybe you've heard of JVC Force. Listen to the situation, my son. I'm as serious as cancer or fun and done. For the time, the people correspond the rhymes to two is valid. The best you will find. Living in CI, who the hell am I? Agent Rock, the juice, I get fly. Cool with the riffing guy. Keep a handle, cause if you don't, I wax it down like a candle. Okay, I'm assuming the CI is Central Islip. It jams, yeah. That's amazing. I just was curious. Sorry to interrupt. I just, when you mentioned the name again, I had wanted to ask about that. Yeah, I, I, I made it a point to find the song right Good. after because it was kicking and yeah. I wanted to know it. Good song. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Please continue. It's a very personal film for the filmmaker. You get that right off the back. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt myself, some of the gaps in terms of what more I wanted to know was not so much about this case because I think... Yancey put it all together the best they could, but um, but I wanted to know more about Yancey. Yeah. Like, where did he get the scar? The scar could be something completely like silly and mundane and normal. I don't know. But it's like, I wanted to know more about Yancey. Because yeah. Yancey was so front and center. And we mean, the camera was like up in Yancey's face hardcore. It was a little intense. It was a little intense. But, like, you saw every expression on Yancey's face. And I won't say the approach was bad. I felt like there were just in a pure filmmaking approach. Some moments seemed overdone, mm-hmm. but I kind of got it. And others seemed also very beautiful. Also, there it's told, and I've, and I've seen this in a few documentaries now, photographs are told yeah. uh, to represent, like, the good times and the bad times and the history of everything. And uh, some some documentaries will be like panning over photographs. You kind of get that a lot. And this one, it's literally like as the narration's going, Yancey's like plopping the pictures down, like they're almost like trading cards or something. Like go go go. And I thought it was a fairly dynamic way to tell this story. I didn't yeah. mind it, and I kind of liked looking at the old photographs mm-hmm. as well. It was an interesting approach to something that I've seen quite a bit at this point. Yeah, there was uh, some Wayne's World extreme close-ups. Extreme close-up! Whoa! 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 
But conveying the story of William and this family and the strengths and the tribulations of this family. And it wasn't all perfect, but man, they, they were there and they all tried. It wasn't, it wasn't a family broken by anything within. Mm-hmm. It's just the world taking a shit on some folks who are doing the best they can to give themselves a, an educated and easy life. And that's the biggest tragedy of all. And, and watching this, it's like, like I said, like the idea of a man standing up for himself and, and just being shot. That's something that can happen right now. Mm-hmm. That's something that does happen every day. And I don't know. I don't know what's going on with people's minds, but it's like this movie really reminded me of modern troubles in a lot of ways, even though it wasn't explicitly trying to bridge the, it didn't have to, if you're aware of, if you have a heart, if you, if you believe in justice, then you can, you can, it ain't hard to bridge that gap between the time of William's death and now. Mm-hmm. So, um, some techniques, Maybe a little overdone, but but I felt this story. I felt very connected to this story, and I really liked it. I'm curious as to what Yancey's future approaches in filmmaking are going to be. I'm sure they, Yancey's got more out there. I might have to seek it out, mm-hmm. see how it does. And uh, I'm going to give it a dead-on four out of five Werner Herzogs. Yeah. Angela? I agree with a lot of what you said. I really loved the photographs being actually moved around by a person. I thought that added a personal touch to it. Because there were certain moments where you said they were kind of plopped down. That wasn't always the case. There were in some times, but there were other times where they'd be very carefully placed. You know? And like sort of centered or touched. Like in, And it wasn't like an extra long time. But I don't know, it just gave like an extra little bit of love to it, reminding you like these are real people, this is their family. I, I would find myself looking at Yancey's fingernails. Same, same. Seam? Yeah. Seam. Seam. Um, <laughs> that's a new thing. Seam? Uh, <laughs> the extreme close-ups were off-putting at first, but I somehow just got used to it. Seam. I really loved... <laughs> um, There was a little bit of a... What felt to me like an Errol Morris quality to Barbara's interview mm. in the kitchen because she was in the kitchen and there was a sprinkler outside the window that kept going by. And I love that idea of so many of these interviews, even with Kevin, like actually being in that house. I think that really put an extra bit to it that wouldn't have been if it had just been in a studio somewhere. I think that made it really special that they were like living in that space and so talking about that time in that space we don't have to talk about the weird upside down scene at the end but that was a little weird but i think it was just sort of the world the, the whole thing down, yeah man. like the whole thing kind of flipped them on their heads and i i get i get that the symbolism was a little heavy for me sure but that was really the only thing i would put a hard like on i really thought it was good 
and the scene from the top of the train, there was also, because you know I get real like into, or really don't like, when people do like those sweeping yeah. street shots and stuff. But whenever that kind of thing was utilized in this, I thought that it was good. The train shot was really interesting. It seemed to be like a camera on the front of a train. I love that. That was beautiful. Yeah. So some of it was really, really great. I agree that I would watch something else by this person. I'd want to see what they would do with something that they were maybe a little stepped away from, like a topic that wasn't so close to their heart because you can tell there's a lot in this. I also really appreciated the transparency of Yancey filming themselves on the phone with these people having these difficult conversations and letting that camera continue to roll. And then seeking comfort in his wife and girlfriend. We get a scene there as well. Yes. And then even after that, even after comfort has been gotten, still breaking down and screaming into a rag. Like, that's the kind of thing you do. Because you just have to feel those feelings. You cannot keep that shit inside. And I loved that. Again, there's just like an honesty here that I really appreciate. It didn't feel extra to me. Does that make sense? It didn't feel like I'm going to put a put on this show for you right now. This was very much like a, it felt very personal in that the people involved in the story needed the story to be told just as much as they want people to know the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. They needed to say the words so that other people know it, but it's also just the act of it, I feel like was very important for them. Um, and I'm crying again. And, um... But you give it. I'm going to also give it a four. I'm going to also give it a four. I thought it was really good. We'll take another chancy on Yancey. <laughs> take your four, combine it with mine. It's a very good eight out of ten. Yeah, very songs. good. A very, I'm just like an eight plus, you know? like. Yeah, yeah. Great job. Very, uh, very emotionally thick documentary. And, yeah. a, and a story and a case that, you know... In terms of the scumbag elements that are still alive, I feel like periodically I'd want to go in and check on and see like what this what's this Mark Coward and this Dick Daughtry doing. You know, I also I did think it was interesting and I don't know if Yancey tried to get in touch with any of those people or not. It doesn't matter though. You know what I mean? Because it's not their story. It ain't their god dang story. Uh-huh. All right. All right. Okay, um, that's that. That's that film. We're going to go towel off our tears now. <laughs> yeah. All right now, and stay strong. Wait, is Strong Island where Kelly Clarkson wrote that song? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You just want to clip Kelly Clarkson. I forgot to make that joke at the top, <laughs> so we'll do it on the way out, all right? Sorry, keep on docking. <laughs> When they moved to the neighborhood where I grew up in Central Islip, it was essentially moving back into a segregated community. Segregation draws a line around not just your neighborhood, but your life. Sorry, you can't have more. Sorry, you can't earn more. You can't shop here. You can't live here. You can't move here. This is it for you. (laughs) 
I have a rep to protect. I feel the means I dissect. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. But now Long Island effect. That's word to her. It's about out east. We got the talent eating it up like a Sunday feast. Hear from the doctor, go get the priest. Cause as of now, MCs should deceased. Straight from the mic, all trouble release. You wanna strike like a cake? I'll dish you a piece. I need a scratch. Now my battery's banging. Sorry for the pause and me to leave you hanging. I'm good to go so that you know my words flow. I got the voice as choice kicking in this demo. Getting fully, fully paid with my man Andrew Jackson. My bank accountant Ben Franklin just maxing. So I sit court while my 50s I sort. Once in a while I lounge about in the gear that I brought. Taking daily shopping sprees with major credit cards. Buying up before disregard. Money ain't the object cause I got it to fling. My lower closet's well the valley and the upper's just king. Step up on the platform. Kid, if you're so irate, we complete with defeat. It's not added a fate. Test your skills if you will. Don't let us trouble your faith. But the almighty JVC force, the boss with some great strong island.